Well, good morning and welcome to the first trade show guy Monday morning coffee of 2018. A little coffee here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, looking back one year, I said that, you know, my outline for the Monday morning coffee is simple. So I started in January of 2017. Speak for a few moments about business, trade show marketing, a few personal things. I'll leave you with a tip or two and highlight a one good thing that I've run across in the past week or so. Um, didn't take long, really. A few months to realize that I needed more. So I started adding guests to the mix. These guests were from the event and the trade show industry in some cases, and in other cases, they were not. Instead, they were, you know, just business people with a skill or point of view to share, or they had a new book out, or they were, you know, about to release one. In any event, I wanted to welcome different voices to this podcast slash video blog, and I, and I think I've succeeded. You know, I'm not really doing this to see how many listeners or viewers I can get, although, you know, the more the merrier. I'm doing it more or less as a way of keeping behind the microphone on a regular basis. It's also branding me as Trade Show Guy, which is now official, by the way. I did get the uh, word from the uh, U.S. Patent and Trademark Office that uh, Trade Show Guy is an official trademark owned by me. So I'm officially the Trade Show Guy. Uh, so anyway, um, you know, I've asked a lot of people. To be a guest, everyone has willingly said yes, no matter who they are. So I'll keep asking people and hopefully keep having guests on a regular basis, although uh, not having one is okay as well. So uh, please subscribe at iTunes and leave a review if you're so inspired and, and share the word about this little, little podcast or slash video blog. Uh, you may have noticed that I changed up the theme song a bit. I, I recorded a new one a couple days ago, one that's... Uh, a little more upbeat and ska-like. It's kind of fun. I just sit down in, in my studio and pull out the bass guitar and the guitar and my drums and whatnot. And a little ditty that's, you know, upbeat and fun and, and shorter. Uh, so it's only like 30, 30 seconds long. So here's the whole thing right here, just in, in and of itself. go that's the uh, new the trade show guy blog theme song video blog video log podcast whatever this week i had the pleasure to speak with charles pappas senior writer at exhibitor magazine author of the new book flying cars zombie dogs and robot overlords a look at the history of expos exhibitions and trade shows he's the perfect guy to write this book uh, which is really fun and really entertaining and, and the conversation was too here's how it went Good morning, Charles. I appreciate you joining me, and uh, I want to talk about your book. It's called Flying Cars, Zombie Dogs, and Robot Overlords. I got to ask you, uh, how did you come up with the title? That's an awesome title. <laughs> well, actually, it took a long time to come up with it because there were many possibilities, and to be honest, most of them were bland. And finally, I went through what are the highlights? What are some of the more interesting parts about this history? And I thought, put the parts together for the title. So it's literally got parts about flying cars, zombie dogs, and robot overlords, and how the world of world's fairs and trade shows are actually kind of preparing us for those things by letting those things hit their tipping point at fairs. You know, I was just thinking that the very first time I, I heard about a fair or a world's fair or anything was uh, 
I'm going to say I was about six years old, seven years old. I think it was the 1961 or so World's Fair up in Seattle where they uh, debuted the uh, Space Needle. Exactly. And I didn't get to go, but my older brother got to go, and I was a little disappointed that I didn't get to go because I was two years younger. But I, I've been to the Space Needle many times, of course, over the years up here in the Northwest. But that was my sort of first, you know, young uh, introduction to what a fair was, I thought, you know, World's Fair. But, but this covers everything. I mean, and so it's a fascinating history. Why did you decide to write the book, Charles? Well, you know, the truth is I started at Exhibitor Magazine in 2002. And when I started, we have a column in the back, back of the book, last page called Archive, where we take a photo of old trade shows, fairs, state fairs, what have you, and then have a little bit of text that kind of puts it in its context and kind of showing you the history and the power of exhibiting. So it was kind of just left to me to take over, and I started it and, you know, really liked it. But what I found is that what we weren't doing enough of was showing the full power, not of the force, but of exhibits. And in this case, what I found is that almost everything you know in your life, from that wall socket behind you to an ice cream cone you might have, to the idea of flying cars, to the temperance movement, all of it hit a tipping point at exhibitions. Almost everything we know started there, even in this era of television, radio, the internet, uh, messaging. Those are the places where these things started and even today still continue to start. And it's because of the power they have that's rivaled by nothing else. So it, it, someone invents something, a company or an individual, and then they, they are trying to get this out there. But there's some sort of thing about a fair where thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, or even in, in the case of a World's Fair, millions of people see something. And then all of a sudden it hits, oh, yeah, we can use this. So that's, so you're just showing the history of all of that. Exactly. I'll give you one example. 1893 fair held in Chicago. It's estimated that one-fourth of America came there. Really? Imagine one-fourth of America coming to see your product today. And not for like a six-second web advertisement or a 30- or 60-second TV advertisement. Imagine them coming there for days and seeing it once, twice, maybe dozens of times. And at that fair, I think the best example is Aunt Jemima, which was a nowhere brand before it which had, was actually floundering. So the owners, the R.T. Davis Milling Company that owned the brand thought, let's make this our last shot at becoming successful. So they hired a woman named Nancy Green, an ex-slave herself from Kentucky, to portray a character, Aunt Jemima. They put her in an exhibit next to the world's largest flower barrel, measuring, I guess, 24 by 12 feet. <laughs> and over the course of a few months, she cooked 50,000 pancakes. Within 10 years, the Aunt Jemima brand was the second most trusted commercial brand in America. And today, almost, what, 120 years later, it's still a viable brand. But it absolutely ensconced itself at that fair and became a permanent fixture of American life. So you've been at Exhibitor Magazine, you said, since the early part of the, of the century. And has your, has your position there changed over the years? Uh, I'm just curious because you see you kind of landed on this element, uh, not, you know, not at the beginning, obviously, of your, of your time there. 
No, I will actually I'm senior writer there now. Okay. And of course I do a lot of features, columns and so on and such like, but my baby, if you will, is the archive column because I've been able to kind of research it to my heart's content. And they give me a very, very long leash here to do that. And it's enabled me to go to the World's Fair, Shanghai, Milan, uh, and I was just in Kazakhstan for that one as well. So I've been able to see that. And by the way, I just want to hark back to something you said about Seattle in 62. Yes. Mine, mine was New York in 65. Ah. I made that one. My father drove us out from Wisconsin, and that has stayed in my memory for the last now almost 60 years because of how powerful the effect was of being in that collective experience. Um, I was there and saw when they launched the Ford Mustang in the Ford exhibit. And you went up by a Ford convertible, Mustang convertible, up an escalator, which by the way, premiered at the 1900s, <laughs> right? Right. Now, they had put so much on this exhibit that they were able to sell 22,000 Mustangs within the first few days after it debuted at the fair. That's the power of that exhibit. And it's been rivaled by, how many things can say that? How many advertisements can launch you that way? But, and then of course, when you went up the escalator, you jumped in one of 160 Ford convertibles, about a dozen or so of which were actually Mustangs as well. And you went around an animatronic diorama of the history of mankind, including basically a Jurassic Park. You know, 60 <laughs> years ago almost, right. but they had it then. Wow. And this, this, was you know, this was how they did it in the 39 World's Fair in New York, Swift Armor, uh, the meatpacking company was intent on showing how hygienic the meat processing was because we were moving then from kind of uh, butchers would cut the meat to kind of pre-packaged meat and they wanted to show consumers how safe it was. They built an assembly plant that could see workers, women in these white hygienic uniforms hmm. processing the meat. Millions saw it because the attendance at the fair was roughly 50 million. Wow. That's the effect you have with fairs. And of course, it's trickled down to state fairs and exhibits themselves today. Yeah, and of course, you, then you have the, uh, the national uh, trade shows, which are business to business, those types of things that uh, are a, kind of a, a different level. But you know, the book is fascinating because it's, you can just pop in anywhere and read a chapter. I'm just looking at the table of contents, 65 chapters. Uh, each chapter is a few pages long, and most of them have photos. So you know, obviously, you're such a history buff. You had to uh, track down pictures and things like that. But that was probably an interesting part of the challenge. It's interesting. I'll tell you why. Because some of these, well, many of them are from the Library of Congress. So it's nice because they're free. Right. But others are a little more obscure. So, for instance, what I found, one of the greatest sources of pictures of the Eiffel Tower, believe it or not, it's the Otis Elevator Company. Yeah because they installed two of the original four elevators in the base of the Eiffel Tower. And hence, they took a lot of photos in 1880 and 1889 of the tower itself during construction. And it's very cool. And of course, why only two of the four? Because the other two had to be French manufacturers. But they also went for what they thought was the premier manufacturer of that time, the elevator company. And let me backtrack a, let me backtrack a bit here. 
In fact, the Otis Elevator Company got its start at a World's Fair. 1853, the World's Fair in New York City, they wanted to demonstrate how safe their elevators were because they had a nasty habit of the cable snapping and crushing the people <laughs> So Elisha James Otis raised the elevator two stories up and then snipped the rope holding it up. People in the crowd started to yell and shriek. It just went down a couple inches, but the safety mechanism caught it perfectly. Hmm. And that established Otis Elevator even further than Aunt Jemima as the premier brand of elevator. I mean, can you think of another one? Yeah, trust. Yeah, yeah that, that shows trust just like that. That's, that's great. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, and I thought what was kind of cool is it started establishing something that World's Fairs also did for trade shows. And that was the idea of life or death demonstrations. Wow. Where you have a genuine capacity for failure that could even end in physical harm to people. But it was started at the 1851 fair, the first true world's fair in Britain, when the Day and Newell Company from England decided to challenge Chubb, the maker of the world's greatest locks in London. In fact, they were the uh, locks for the Royal Bank, post office, even some of the crown jewels. So they did pre-show marketing by sending out a challenge to them at the fair. And of course, this was considered absurd. This is a mom and pop company taking on Walmart. Let's put it right. that way. <laughs> They show up with a locksmith named Alfred Charles Hobbs, who was basically the Houdini of locksmiths. At live demonstrations at the fair, and then on a tour of England, he opened up chub locks one after the other, after the other, after the other, after the other, within 15 to 20 minutes. It was considered impossible to that point. It was so effective a demonstration through a fair that what they did, that the London Times actually did an editorial on the decline of English craftsmanship and the rise of American entrepreneurs. Overnight, the Bank of England got rid of Chubb locks and bought the Day and Newell locks. <laughs> That's how effective the, the power of fairs. It's it's a fascinating book, Charles. Uh, did you work with the publisher editors? I'm just curious how that process went. How long it took you to, to put this together? Well, it took me well in a sense 15 years since right. I started collecting info, deciding what I thought was interesting enough to put in the book. The writing itself took nine months. I right. wanted actually two years, but the publisher thought that was a little. <laughs> there were stories I had to leave out because they would have taken a lot longer to develop and research because while a lot of this is available, some of the information is still locked in libraries, not on the internet. Right. Uh, for instance, my, my white whale, the one I really want to get is a picture of bare aspirin promoting its trademark product, heroin. Oh, wow. Of the 20th century. Now, I wrote them and asked, but they, for some reason, don't, don't have a picture. Don't have a picture of that. <laughs> it's kind of like Coca-Cola with, uh, you know, the, the, the cocaine. Uh, that, that was an ingredient back in the early days, wasn't it? Indeed, it was. And it's kind of funny because, again, it's, you know, I'm interested in it from a historical viewpoint, but sure. they did promote it at fairs when it was considered a safe and viable product at right. one time. But that, that, again, is where did they launch it? Fairs. Yeah. You know, even today, when you talk about like consumer electronics show, where do all the great gadgets really hit a tipping point? There, yeah. E3 for games. I mean, the car shows. 
is where we're now getting uh, the autonomous cars showing off and being tested. Yeah, we can see some on the net. Yeah, we can see some on TV ads. But where does it really hit consciousness in the public when you see it live at these shows? Nothing replaces the live collective experience of people trade shows. That's true. And, and those that can't make the show can still stream some of it or read the accounts of it because there's certainly a lot of press online that, that cover those types of shows. Fascinating book, Charles. Oh, where can people find uh, Flying Cars, Zombie Dogs, and Robot Overlords? <laughs> well, I like to say in every great bookstore, but you can also find it on Amazon and right. Noble. Uh, it's there. Just look up the title because it's pretty easy to read. Yeah, exactly. And let's just get a little bit about what Exhibitor Magazine is. Can you give me a, just a brief history of that? I know it's been around for a while and you've been with them for, what did you say, 15 years or so? But we've been around for about 30 and essentially we write about the best practices in the exhibition industry. That is how to become a more effective marketer with your exhibit. Um, from the nuts and bolts to the pre-show marketing to color schemes to uh, you know brand ambassadors. Everything you can think of, we try to cover. So it's really aimed at uh, trade show managers and companies that want to uh, step up their trade show game. And I'm sure you have a lot of readers of, of just people that are uh, vendors and providers in the industry as well because they want to see what, what uh, other people are doing and, and uh, want to be a part. So. Right. We do. So it's actually, as I say, but it's a great venue for me to be able to indulge a yeah. real mine and be able to extend it. But what I hope, you know, actually the message I want people to take away from this is, I, while I hope it's fun to read, I also want anyone in the exhibition industry to know that besides your daily grind, you make history. You are part of the most effective marketing vehicle ever created, and you are part of this historical tradition. You make history. Yeah, that's what uh, shows and fairs and and uh, expos do. Uh, Charles, I really appreciate your time. Thanks for spending it uh, here on Trade Show Guy Monday Morning Coffee. I uh, really appreciate it. Thank, Thank you. you. I, it was my pleasure. All right. Take care. Thank you. All right. And thanks again to Charles Pappas of Exhibitor Magazine, the author of the new book, Flying Cars, Zombie Dogs, and Robot Overlords. This week's trade show tip of the week comes from a very recent blog post on Trade Show Guy blog, which actually is a rewrite of something I did about 10 or 12 years ago, uh, and updated it. So it's nine things you need to know before buying a custom trade show booth. So, you know, it's a big, big investment uh, in a custom trade show exhibit. So it, it's something you got to think a lot about. So what are you getting into? Well, the things to think about, number one, uniqueness. You know, a, a trade show exhibit that's custom will have a very unique, one-of-a-kind presentation. If the designer does his job, uh, you know, it'll look like nothing else out there. Uh, flexibility. A custom exhibit can be designed and fabricated from the outset to accommodate a variety of needs. Like maybe you want something that fits in an island booth, but you want to pull some pieces out for a 10 by 20 or a 10 by 10 space. Uh, and so there you go. Pride of ownership, of course. A custom exhibit gives you a lot of intangibles. Uh, it's a unique corporate identity. Um, a feeling that can't be beat all the way from the CEO to the frontline staffers. I've seen it happen time and time again. When uh, the staff comes in and they see it for the first time, they go, oh, geez, this is ours. This is awesome. Uh, there are options, of course. Uh, uh, you know, with a custom booth, you get a lot of options which you may not be able to put into a, you know, off-the-shelf sort of booth, as it were. So options is one of those things that you get more from. Logistics, something to consider. You've got drayage and shipping and installation and dismantle because if you're moving into a custom booth that's large, like a 20 by 20 or bigger island, 
you know, that that really means you're adding a lot to your budget from the stuff that you might not normally have done. I mean, an old 10 by 10, 10 by 20, you might have just set it up with a couple of guys from the shop uh, or salesmen. But if you're getting into a bigger custom booth, you're moving into a different area. So there's more to be uh, looking at there, more to consider. Of course, you also get custom look, you get custom function, you get custom branding. That's the main reason to uh, consider a custom exhibit that after all is said and done, you want a booth that looks like no other. Uh, design and fabrication. Is it, it One question that pops up, is it important to have the same company that designs your booth fabricate it? Um, not necessarily, but usually having the design and the fabrication shop uh, basically in the same company right next door to each other means the communication is smoother and more efficient. Uh, so another thing you want to look to is pricing. Budget is often the key element of a new exhibit project and creating a custom exhibit will often drive the cost higher than picking something that's more off the shelf. So uh, be prepared to pay more for a custom booth. That's that's the nature of the beast. And finally, a uh, learning curve. Um, kind of like the growing pains I just mentioned. Many companies step up from a small modular booth to a custom booth, go through growing pains. Uh, they're spending more money. They're having to deal with higher shipping costs and installation and dismantle. And the staff now has a larger space to deal with. Uh, so you got to train more people, got to bring more people. But ultimately, every company I've worked with that has gone through the process unanimously report back that, gosh, this was really, really well worth it. So those are the nine things to look at and to know before buying a custom trade show exhibit. And this week's one good thing. Um, I got the gift of music this Christmas in the form of a very nice gift certificate uh, to the local record store, Ranch Records, here in Salem. One of the CDs I picked up was Beck's new CD called uh, Colors. I'm not a huge Beck fan, but I've liked a lot of his stuff over the years. I don't own anything behind by him, I don't think, until this one. Uh, it's called Colors. It's got a lot of uh, synthesizers and keyboards, a lot of percussion, great little hooky songs, which uh, Beck is very good at, loads of fun. I've only heard it a couple times, and I think I have to hear it maybe a half a dozen times more before I really understand it. Uh, but first couple of listens, I'd highly recommend it. It's this week's one good thing. And with that, I look forward to having you on board this year for the uh, Trade Show Guy Monday Morning Coffee Podcast slash vlog. Please subscribe at iTunes and uh, let people know and leave a review if you are so inspired.